This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, I'm Tom Switzer. Great to have your company. This is Between the Lines. When you think of Imran Khan, what comes to your mind? Well, many of us of a certain sports vintage, we think of the legendary Pakistani cricket all-rounder. Wasn't he outstanding? He played test cricket from 1971 to 1992. That's an extraordinary innings. After Imran Khan stepped down as a captain of Pakistan's greatest ever test cricket team, this was 30 years ago, he set his heart on a most improbable ambition to become Prime Minister, a feat he accomplished in 2018. He set himself the task of rescuing fellow Pakistanis from what he's always seen as a corrupt political elite. And there were widespread hopes that Imran Khan could repeat on the world stage what he did for Pakistan Test cricket decades ago. That is, lift Pakistan out of the doldrums and turn it into an efficient state capable of realising its fabulous potential. However, those expectations, they've been hardly met, have they? Imran Khan lost power in controversial fashion last April, and having survived an apparent assassination attempt, he's calling for new elections. So why is the 70-year-old former leader, Imran Khan, in trouble? Can he bounce back? And what does all this mean for Pakistan? A nation with 200 million people, huge natural resources, but since independence, 75 years ago, a troubled nation beset by problems of terror, poverty and corruption. Sudanan Dume is a columnist at the Wall Street Journal, a former Delhi and Jakarta correspondent and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. Sudanan, welcome back to Between the Lines. Good to be back, Tom. Now, let's just begin with some context. In April, Imran Khan was ousted from power in a no-confidence vote. Why? Well, the short reason is that he lost the confidence of parliament. Um, The longer reason is that he lost the confidence of the chief of the army, who was the most powerful person in Pakistan, and his very tenuous majority in parliament that had been cobbled together with the help of the army in 2018 collapsed once the army stopped backing him and therefore he was stripped out of power. Okay, now the former Prime Minister's made all sorts of allegations. Let's just go through them one by one. He has, this is Imran Khan, he suggested that people within the government might have been behind the recent shooting. This was a month ago. So he he left office in April. A month ago, he was shot at. He blames people within the government uh, for this attempt on his life. So he says he says it's an assassination, an assassination attempt. Is there any proof to support this allegation? Um, you know, we just have allegations and counter allegations. Now, what Imran Khan says is that he was shot. This is a fact. Um, he was shot in the leg. It was clearly an assassination attempt, and uh, he may well have been killed. The official version is that the assassin was a lone religious fanatic who attacked Imran Khan because he thought Imran Khan was likening himself to the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, That person was later seen on YouTube saying this. Imran Khan's version, and he's very specific, he has uh, mentioned the prime minister, and he's mentioned the interior minister, 
And he's mentioned a serving major general in the ISI, which is the Pakistan Army's intelligence agency. And he has said that these people were behind the plot to have him assassinated. And the part that is really, you know, quite um, that that has created um, a, a political earthquake in Pakistan is his really going after a senior officer, major general in the intelligence service, which is, you know, typically a real uh, it's a real no no in Pakistani public life. But Imran Khan has gone there, and he's also pointed fingers at U.S. involvement in this alleged conspiracy against him. Again, any proof? Well, not in the assassination attempt. So he claims that the U.S. was behind his ouster in April. It's actually quite a, you know, it's a completely far-fetched claim. And if, you know, you know, people like you who understand how Washington uh, works and how diplomacy works would sort of find it laughable. What he, he claims that at a, at a lunch, a senior State Department official, the Assistant Secretary for South and Central Asia, said to the ambassador that uh, relations would not be good as long as Imran Khan was in power which was their signal to get to turf him out of office. Um, as you and I know, that's not how exactly, <laughs> not exactly how these things work. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but he has a, there are many, many people in Pakistan who believe this. And if you were to say anything about this on Twitter, for instance, you instantly get, you know, dozens of passionate Imran Khan supporters insisting that, in fact, it was the U.S. that... Uh, turfed him out of office. So he's made political capital. He's He's got a good political story. He's telling it. In my view, it's not remotely factual. Well, he does accuse the US, and he's not alone, as you say. There's a, there's a lot of people in Pakistan who believe this, and there are scholars in the West. I think of Noam Chomsky and John Pilger, among others. They, he's accused the US of imposing a master-slave relationship on, on Pakistan and using Pakistan like, quote, tissue paper. Does America treat Pakistan as a slave nation? Well, you know, all I could say is that if that's a master-slave relationship, I think there'd be many more countries signing up to be slaves. <laughs> because, <laughs> um, you know, the truth is, Tom, the, the U.S. has been very generous towards Pakistan over many, many decades. Um, it's given Pakistan tens of billions of dollars of aid, both economic assistance and military assistance. It ha- it's, had America- it's had Pakistan's back diplomatically for much of its history. Um, And I think the real tragedy of Pakistan is that it did not take advantage of its closeness with the U.S. the way better-run countries did, right? So in East Asia, um, look at how the Taiwanese or the South Koreans used their close ties with, with, with the U.S. during the Cold War. They modernized their economies. They built world-class industries. They pulled their people out of poverty into pr- prosperity. And Pakistan did none of those things. I mean, basically, it used its closeness to the to the to the U.S. by uh, the general siphoned off aid. They gave they they gave themselves sweetheart real estate deals. And Pakistan has really failed to modernize its economy. It failed to sort of take off, uh, com- not only compared to the East Asian economies, but even compared to some of the South Asian countries, India or Bangladesh. And so there is a sense of frustration and there's a sense of resentment among many Pakistanis that Pakistan has slipped on the world stage. But I wouldn't blame America for that. There are many countries that were close to America that did really well. And the countries that were close to America and that didn't do well, I think they should look inward and blame themselves. Yes. Well, I mean, during the Cold War, of course, America did tilt in favor of Pakistan over India. 
and, and Imran Khan, one of his other arguments is he wants Pakistan to emulate India. He praises India for its independent foreign policy. What do you make of those views? It's quite ironic, right? I never thought I'd live to see the day where you have a popular Pakistani politician playing clips of the Indian foreign minister at his <laughs> rallies, like thousands of people and saying, look, <laughs> we need to be more like these guys. Um, and <laughs> the, the, the essence of his argument is that India manages to have a close relationship with the U.S. through the Quad and elsewhere, despite the fact that it also maintains close relations with the Russians. And the example he uses is that India has continued to buy Russian oil even after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In fact, India has significantly stepped up its purchase of Russian oil since the invasion. And he says, well, if India can do it, why can't Pakistan? And the response to that is actually pretty obvious. There are two reasons. Um, the first is that even though the U.S. and India have their differences about Russia, uh, the U.S. and India are broadly on the same page, as is Australia, as is Japan, on the question of China's rise and the potential for Chinese hegemony in Asia. That's the biggest geostrategic question facing the U.S., and the U.S. and India are broadly on the same page. Secondly, India is still a developing country. We've, we've talked about the Indian economy before. But it's done much, much better than Pakistan. So at this point, India's GDP is about $3.2 trillion. It's more than nine times the size of Pakistan's economy. India has a thriving tech startup sector. It's had more, more than 100 Indian companies have become unicorns, you know, companies valued at a billion dollars at startup. Um, and Pakistan doesn't have a single one. And I'm actually not an India booster when it comes to the economy because I, I often look at the Indian economy in uh, in, in glass half empty terms. But the fact is that there is a certain uh, size element that matters in geopolitics. And the fact that India has an economy that is more than nine times larger than Pakistan, and the fact that it's on the same page as the US when it comes to China, means that it naturally has much more wiggle room on the international stage on questions like uh, its relations with Russia. Okay, well then what next for Khan and his standoff with the government? Because, you know, obviously he's been shot, he's been injured at this political rally uh, in this uh, apparent assassination attempt. That was um, a few weeks ago. Now he's, he's back on the campaign trail. He says he won't be intimidated by the threat of further violence. He now wants early elections, which aren't due for about a year. So could he succeed in dissolving the parliament? And, and if he does, would that just plunge Pakistan into further political crisis? Sudanad? So we don't know. Um, I will say one thing, that even Imran Khan's fiercest critics will give him credit for one thing. He has an enormous amount of tenacity. Uh, very stubborn, uh, very tenacious. Uh, he's a natural leader of men in many ways. So the question really is now, you know, you've got, you've got this powerful, charismatic leader who's on the warpath, but he's now up against the military. The military no longer trusts him to do a good job. So one view is, I mean, the PT, his, his supporters would say that it is fated, just like he led Pakistan to victory against all odds. We all remember, or some of us remember that famous final in the beautiful Melbourne cricket ground in 1992, where Imran Khan <laughs> led the, led the, the country right. to the... That's, that, is, that is the Imran Khan that his supporters see. 
So they see him as coming back. He's the underdog, but he will come back and triumph because that is what fate has written. And there are other analysts who are much more skeptical who say that, look, this guy was always the creation of the military. If it wasn't for the military, he would not have become prime minister in 2018. Mm. And without the military, he's a spent bullet. I mean, he can still address some rallies and so on. But it seems very unlikely that he'll come back to power. I'm not looking into that crystal ball. I don't know the future. But I think either way, it's a hell of a story that's unfolding. Well, the Pakistan has, has recently seen the most devastating floods. That's been well reported. And of course, it's it's in the grip of an economic crisis. And yet the political leaders just seem to be tearing strips out of each other. To be continued. Sudanan, always great to have you on Between the Lines. A pleasure, Tom. That was Sudanan Dume, a columnist at the Wall Street Journal and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. Up next, Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel's most conservative and religious government. you think of great political comeback fighters, you no doubt think of the Menzies, the Churchills, the Nixons, the John Howards, the Shinzo Abe's, the Dr. Mahatias. But really, when you think about it, one politician stands out, Benjamin Netanyahu. After the recent Israeli elections, the 73-year-old veteran is poised for another comeback that could usher in one of Israel's most, well, it's probably the most conservative and religious government ever in Israel. It's quite intriguing. And this story has not been getting much attention. Now, remember Bibi, as he's also known, he's been written off many times for more than three decades. So what accounts for Netanyahu's amazing ability to stage repeated comebacks? And also, what does his new coalition government mean for Israel and the region? Professor Sally Totman is a Middle East politics specialist. These days, she's based at Charles Sturt University at Bathurst. Hi there, Sally. Welcome back to Between the Lines. Hi, Tom. It's lovely to be back. Now, first of all, how do you account for Benjamin Netanyahu's amazing ability to stage these political comebacks? Well, part of it is experience. He's been around a really long time. In fact, he's Israel's longest-serving prime minister, having served 15 years in total, which is very impressive for a country that's only 74 years old. But more than just experience, Netanyahu is a smart political operator. He's able to adapt to changing circumstances, and he's more than willing to partner up with people and groups who have vastly different ideologies if it will get him what he wants. And what he wants right now is to be prime minister again. And just to clarify, for those tuning in who don't follow the intricacies of Israeli politics, let's just clarify, Netanyahu, he's on trial for corruption, right? Absolutely. Um, And yet he's still able to regain political power. How does that work? uh, So Netanyahu's been under investigation since December 2016. Uh, He wasn't actually indicted until November 2019 for a breach of trust, bribery and fraud. But he's not legally obliged to step down as uh, an Israeli prime minister can remain in office until they're convicted of a crime. So he's just waiting uh, it out. How long is that process likely to be? 
long. Uh, and depending on, I guess, some of his appointments, that process could perhaps be interrupted um, completely. So some of that remains to be seen. But look, the, I guess, indictment happened in uh, November 2019. COVID pushed things off a little bit uh, because of that. And then, you know, a variety of things has meant that, he, you know, the trial just isn't really proceeding at a pace you'd expect. He's 73 years of age, but he he really looks like he's in his early 60s. How does he do it? How does he look so good for someone who's um, not young? Gosh, I wish I knew the answer to that, Tom. I might, you know, (laughs) keep secrets for myself. Look, he's full of energy and he always has been. Um, I I think he wakes up in the mornings, you know, with with a goal. Um, And that goal at this point is to be the Prime Minister again. And that gives him the energy he needs to get things done. So the political landscape in 2022 in Israel, it looks utterly familiar with the return of Netanyahu, but it's also utterly new. Now, for the first time, we have an avowedly far-right politician, one with a criminal conviction for inciting racial hatred. He'll become National Security Minister. Now, this is a new position. Now, his name is Itamar Ben-Gavir, and his ultra-nationalist Zionist group My understanding, Sally, is that will be the second largest bloc in the governing coalition in Netanyahu's Liquid Party. What sort of politician is Itamar Ben-Gavir and why is he so controversial? Well, he certainly is a controversial figure. He has very extreme views. And as you said, he's faced dozens of charges of hate speech against Arabs. Uh, In fact, in October this year, he took part in clashes between uh, Israeli Jewish settlers and local Palestinian residents in the Sheikh Jarrah neighbourhood in East Jerusalem. Uh, He was actually brandishing a gun and telling police to shoot at Palestinians, throwing stones at the scene. Uh, Apparently, he was yelling at the Palestinians that, and this is a quote, where the landlords here, remember that, I am your landlord. Now, that's certainly not the sort of thing that you would expect from a government minister. And, you know, the reason he is so controversial is that's very extreme behaviour uh, in any kind of part of Israeli society. Well, Ben Gavir is described by the BBC as, quote, a, a gun-brandishing street agitator who has past convictions for racist incitement and supporting a Jewish terrorist group. Sally, is there any indication that this guy's changed? He's now aged 46. Uh, No, absolutely not. I mean, that example I just gave you is from October this year. I think, in fact, this new position that he's likely to receive may embolden him, in fact, to more extreme acts. We're just going to have to wait and see. Well, he's favoured to be this national security minister. I understand that's a, a new role in the government. What are his powers? Look, it is a new role and it's not completely understood what it will encompass fully, but one of them would be control over the border police in the West Bank. And this is really quite a big one. It'll certainly lead to a blurring of the boundaries between uh, Israel and the West Bank. And in my opinion, I think it could lead to more violent clashes in those regions um, because he will sort of uh, not be restraining the police as much as, as it has been in the past. Now, this guy, Ben Gavir, he leads the second biggest party, as I mentioned, in this coalition government, the Liquid government. Can Netanyahu, and we've already mentioned that he's a veteran political tactician, can Netanyahu, Sally, control a firebrand like Ben Gavir? Well, traditionally for Netanyahu, when it comes to the ultra-Orthodox parties, 
their demands are fairly uncontroversial as far as Netanyahu is concerned. You know, bigger budgets for religious schools, the right not to teach their children secular subjects such as maths and English. But Ben Giver is the most extreme minister that Netanyahu has appointed, which is saying something. Netanyahu's appointed some pretty extreme characters over the years. But the one thing I think that binds both Netanyahu and Ben Gavir together is the desire to stay in power. So that might just be enough to keep Ben Gavir from getting completely out of control and keeping the coalition together. But whether Netanyahu can control him, gosh, we'll have to get the crystal ball out for that. But for Netanyahu, this appointment may end up further alienating the half of Israel that didn't vote for the bloc of parties that are supporting him and that are so extreme. Yeah, I mean, many Palestinians think Netanyahu is extreme. What what would they think of this bloke? Well, he's certainly going to make Netanyahu look like a moderate. Um, Look, Well, has has Netanyahu moderated his tone since the election? No, not at all. And I think the fact that Netanyahu is willing to partner up with these extreme right-wing groups is a sign that he's not moderate in any way. And certainly groups like Palestinian Islamic Jihad and, and Hamas are very concerned about this appointment and what that will mean. And I'm sure that, you know, they'll respond if things start to, you know, become increasingly repressive in the in the occupied territories. You know, it's been 30 years since that famous scene outside the Clinton White House uh, between the Israeli and the Palestinian leaders when they shook hands. And it's been more than 20 years since the Camp David Accords. That was in 2000, I think. There was a real appetite, a real movement towards a groundbreaking peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. It seems to me from afar that things have actually got worse, that the that, that the tensions between Israel and the Palestinians are now at fever pitch. How do you account for that? Look, I think, you know, as you say, in 1993, there was such hope, you know, that famous photograph of Yitzhak Rabin and and Yasser Arafat shaking hands on the White House lawn with Bill Clinton basking in reflective glory. There was that idea at the time that there would be a two-state solution, that that the, you know, peace was coming very soon. And over the years, that's just been whittled away and whittled away. And even the Camp David Accords in 2000 was a lesser you know, I guess, vision of a two-state solution than even we'd sort of seen in 93. But over the years, you know, whether it's the settlements in the West Bank, um, whether it's, the, you know, the, the the wall that was built, the security barrier in 2006, all of those things have changed the landscape. And, and I think now there isn't a peace process. And certainly under this government, you know, there's no talk of a two-state solution. So I think all that hope has gone. Do you think in part this is due to the fact that a lot of the Sunni Gulf states are are, are quietly taking Israel's side on a lot of issues because they're more worried about Iran? Yes and no. I don't think we can lay the death of the peace process on, on that. But I do think that the Palestinian issue has not been a top priority for the for the Sunni Gulf states uh, any longer. Mm. You know, gone are the days from the 19 sort of 69s, you know, the no peace, no negotiation, uh, no recognition, that, that's all gone. You know, Israelis being recognised by those Gulf states sort of one at a time through the Abram Accords. So I think that by not having the Palestinians as a top priority, it has meant that that support and that impetus for for making concessions has gone. You mentioned the peace process is dead, essentially. I mean, what about those who didn't support Netanyahu or his coalition partners? I mean, he now has a reasonably comfortable majority. 
is there now any sort of effective opposition in Israel that does support the two-state peace process? Look, there are plenty of Israelis who support a two-state solution. There are plenty of Israelis who want to live in peace and who, you know, don't want the the checkpoints and, and those sorts of things. But they're not the ones that are forming the, you know, government and, and able to create the coalitions like Netanyahu can. And, and we saw that with the most recent government. They spend all their time trying to hold their coalition together um, and less time worrying about the peace process. So I don't think that any of the governments that we've seen recently in Israel represent the majority of Israelis who do want peace. Sally, we mentioned uh, Iran in passing, and on this program over the last few weeks, we've dedicated a few segments, moving segments, to the plight of Iranian women. It seems to me that the the atmosphere in Washington has certainly turned against renewing the Iranian nuclear deal, which the Trump administration scrapped a few years ago. And there's clearly no appetite in the among the Sunni Gulf states to uh, reach out to Iran. So how do you think this new Israeli government will deal with Tehran? Well, we know what Netanyahu already thinks of Iran. Um, if we go back and think about his, you know, bomb speech with his very strange cardboard cutouts of, you know, we're almost at a nuclear weapon. That, mind you, to be fair to Netanyahu, that was in response to Ahmadinejad's, the former president's taunts that I- Israel should be nuked. Correct. Well, that's true, but I, I, it sticks in my mind as one of my favourite Netanyahu moments. But look, I think Netanyahu um, has always seen Iran as Israel's greatest threat, a physical threat as well as an ideological threat, and so he's not interested in in seeing a, a nuclear deal. Uh, he never has been. So I think you know, for him, the fact that the US is no longer interested is a, is, is you know music to his ears. Finally, Sally, Russia, how might Netanyahu handle relations with Vladimir Putin? The two did work together closely before the war in Ukraine. I mean, what's the nature of Israel-Russia relations uh, nine months since the invasion? Look, Netanyahu can and does, uh, as we've already discussed, work with anyone to get what he wants, and, and Putin is no different. It's likely under the Netanyahu government, Israel and Russia will continue to have good relations on most issues. And the issues that they don't agree on, like Iran, they don't focus on. But I don't think Netanyahu's worried about Ukraine. It's not on his priority list. Sally, always great to have you on Between the Lines. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Tom. That was Professor Sally Topman. She's head of the School of Social Work and the Arts at Charles Sturt University at Bathurst. Up next, David Kemp on his fifth and final volume of Liberalism in Australia. Well, in a major five-volume series, David Kemp tells the story of Australian liberalism. It's rich in detail. It's a political history offering a comprehensive account of the issues and events, the people and the politics that have shaped this nation. Now, to discuss this fifth and final edition, that's right, five volumes, extraordinary. And this particular edition deals with the period after Robert Menzies, so from 1966 right through to this year, 2022. I'm joined by David Kemp. 
He was a long-serving Victorian MP who represented the electorate of Goldstein. This was from 1990 to 2004. Now, these days, it's held by the Teal, Zoe Daniels. And uh, he was also a minister and member of cabinet in the Howard government. Now, before entering parliament, David Kemp was a professor of politics at Monash University and a senior advisor to Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser. David, great to have you back on the program. Thank you very much, Tom. Now, before we talk about the post-Menzies era, your latest thesis, just give us a quick recap of the previous volume. So we're talking about four volumes from 1788 right through to 1966. Well, the um, whole project is really concerned to tell the story of what I've called the Liberal Project in Australia. And that project um, is an attempt to establish in this country uh, a society based around the idea of human dignity for all, equal human dignity. Now, how did that project become established? Well, it has all to do with Australia's unique moment of establishment um, at the time of the British and European Enlightenment. In the Enlightenment, the idea that all people were members of a common humanity, that policy should be in the public interest and rationally argued and uh, determined, uh, that all people um, should have a chance to have an opportunity in society with equal rights, that there should be civil liberties of freedom of speech and commercial freedom, uh, freedom of religion. Uh, these ideas began to be established with the arrival of the British in 1788. And what I've tried to do in these volumes is to trace through the political impact of these sorts of ideas. And of course, they've never dominated the whole political scene. There have always been other ideas, other projects, uh, Christian projects, socialist projects and so forth. Uh, but the volumes trace particularly the, the fate, the successes and the failures of the Liberal Project. And this final volume is an attempt to assess really where the Liberal Project stands today in Australia. Just going back to your fourth uh, volume, this was the last volume and we did a session on this liberal state from 1926 to 66. We, we spoke about that a, a couple of years ago, I think. Just, just humour me with a counterfactual, David. What if, say, socialism after the end of World War II, what if socialism had won the battle of ideas then? Now, how different would things be t today? Well, it would be um, uh, a very different country in the sense that there would never have been a liberalisation of the kind that occurred after uh, Menzies gained power in 1949 uh, because the Liberal Project was uh, very much um, on the floor, as it were, as a result of the Great Depression, uh, the uh, Second World War, the growth of government, the belief in central planning. There would certainly have been Liberal pressures on Australia over that time because Liberalism didn't just uh, recover in Australia, but it did recover around the world as a result of the lessons that were drawn from the Second World War. Uh, so it'd be interesting to, to know whether, suppose Menzies had never existed, uh, whether Australia would have become a liberal country. And while one would like to think that perhaps it might have, there's nothing inevitable about the trends within countries. And uh, we've seen that in South America, for example, where liberalism has come and gone. Uh, we've seen other liberal democracies struggle. We've seen Europe 
now develop into a, a, a supranational state where there is no accountable democratic government for the whole of Europe. Uh, so many possibilities, I think, exist in history. There's nothing inevitable about it. And that's why I think the politics of the Liberal Project are so interesting, because it's out of those politics that Australia has become the kind of country that it is today. And if socialism had won, those politics would have been very different. Yes, well, some listeners may equate liberalism, capital L liberalism, solely with the Liberal Party. But Labor, I mean, what, this is one of your arguments, that's also embraced and supported liberalism. Give us an example. Well, in the period uh, since 1966, of course, we've had um, an extraordinary example of the embrace of economic liberalism by the Labor Party during the Hawke years. And um, we, we've seen really uh, in those, uh, those years with Keating as Treasurer the adoption mm -hmm. by Australia of a very open competitive economy. But if you go right back, the idea that liberal dignity and equality in freedom is an essential element of good policy and a good society We've seen Labor governments embrace this mainly on the welfare side rather than the economic side. I think the Labor Party has had the disadvantage that it was founded by a very strong special interest, the trade union movement in Australia, which has pursued or attempted to pursue through that party uh, its own interests. And we see that even today with the early legislation and, and policy decisions of uh, the, the, new, the new government that... Um, uh, the interests of that movement are very much in the forefront of Labor's mind. But equally, we see Labor prime ministers uh, across the whole period and, and Labor cabinets making decisions, the main objective of which is to give people equal opportunity and the freedom to live their own lives as individuals. Yes. Well, as an aside, I mean, self-evidently, as you've just documented, this liberalism, this the contribution of liberalism has been so profound. But and I think you've made this point, David, there's been a substantial gap in the writing on Australian politics on this subject. So given the profound contribution of liberalism to this country, how do you account for the omission and oversight among most historians? Well, there's an old saying that uh, the elephant in the room is often overlooked. <laughs> and, and it's too big. You take it for granted. You know, you look at everything else. Uh, but, the, the, but, but liberalism has been, as you say, um, profound in its influence. Um, it's penetrated every aspect of national life, uh, not just its politics, of course, but the, its freedoms of association, uh, the belief in ever higher education, uh, the uh, its political institutions, the parliamentary system, the independent judiciary, the principles of separation of powers to protect individual people from arbitrary power, all those things in many ways have been taken for granted. The federal system is another example of the devolution of power which comes out of liberal thinking. So Australia is in a sense the creation of the liberal elements in our culture to a great extent. And Everyone who lives in that culture and pursues politics in that culture uh, necessarily has to take into account and uh, to some extent accept and uh, implement liberal ideas. Well, that brings us to your fifth and final uh, book, Consent of the People, Human Dignity Through Freedom and Equality. So that's from 1966 to the present. 
And you say, David, during this period that Australia became perhaps the most liberal nation in the world. That's a big, bold claim. How do you support that? It's important when thinking about liberalism to realise its breadth. And while there are some nations that um, uh, one would think, you know, off the top of one's head are more socially liberal, and very often the Nordic nations are mentioned here. Uh, in fact, mm. when you look at them, their, their tax rates are enormously high. The amount of expenditure of GDP by government uh, uh, approaches uh, well over 50% in some cases. Although I think their company tax rates are a lot lower than Australia's, their David, to be fair. company tax rates are lower, of course, um, because they, they themselves are, as it were, part of the international movement of liberal thought uh, that's taken mm. place. Australia performs much better than many Australians understand in its liberal policies, certainly in the economic area. For example, uh, the Heritage Foundation's 2020 Index of Economic Freedom, uh, if you mm -hmm. leave aside the city-states of Singapore and Hong Kong, ranked Australia first of all countries in economic wow. freedom. Um, and the World Freedom Index, which orders countries according to freedom of opinion and expression of movement, uh, of equality before the court, security of private property, uh, ranked Australia fourth, but very close to New Zealand, Switzerland and Canada. Um, Australia's education embraces a larger proportion of the population at higher levels than almost any country in the world. And uh, on the social side, in terms of a culture which really is concerned and cares for people, Australia in 2018 was ranked as the most giving country in the world where people are most likely to help strangers and give to charitable causes. Uh, there's a tremendous um, voluntary sector in Australia and non-government sector uh, where people have choice. For example, choice in education, is particularly secondary education, is much more widely spread in Australia than in almost any other place in the world. So I admit it's a judgment um, and it's not mm. something that you can pin down because it depends no. what you include in liberalism. But... Nevertheless, I think it's widely disregarded, perhaps, that, that Australia has been so extraordinarily successful as a Liberal mm. country. And uh, I argue in these volumes that that stems, first of all and foremost, from its foundation at the time of the Enlightenment. And just to clarify, this liberalism project in this country, it's not just about economic affairs, it's also personal social freedoms. Now, your latest volume begins in 1966. Now, Robert Menzies, of course, resigned in January of 66. This was at a time of his choosing, something that's <laughs> hardly ever accomplished in, in politics anywhere, really, <laughs> but um, including your old boss, uh, David uh, John Howard, of course, was a very successful prime minister for 12 years, but he... Um, he did not defy Enoch Powell's doctrine that um, all political careers end in failure. Not that yours ended in failure. You went out on a high in 2004. But leaving that aside, back to 66. <laughs> well, I think I published an article about it at the time in The Australian. But listen, uh, this, this mantle of leadership. So you go from Harold Holt uh, in 66. He, of course, uh, drowns. Dies in 19, late 1967. Briefly, of course, you had the country prime minister, John McEwen. Then you had John Gorton for three years. And then Billy McMahon. What were some of the issues and tensions in the immediate post-Menzies years? So that is the period from Menzies through to Whitlam. Tell us about that period. Well, I think what happened then was that um, although each of those leaders 
regarded Menzies with enormous respect and agreed with him on many issues. Uh, they all had their different emphases as they tried to put into effect what they saw as the the needs of the country of the day and particularly um, the liberal characteristics of that country. Harold Holt was um, saw Menzies, I think, as having been too conservative um, and perhaps too slow to move on matters um, such as the recognition of the rights of Indigenous people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, um, and he took a bit of a lead there. John Gorton saw the opportunities for Australian culture to develop in uh, new ways. Uh, he took particular interest in the film industry. He gave speeches to Parliament uh, on the uh, decriminalisation of homosexuality at the time. Billy McMahon, um, his probably his greatest strength as a as a prime minister was his economic liberalism, and of course uh, that tended to be anti-protectionist, which put him at uh, loggerheads with Jack McEwen. The the larger point within which that story is is told in this volume is is perhaps indicated best by its title consent of the people because no society can become a liberal society implementing liberal values and civil liberties w without having the consent of the people and so liberalism is implemented through democracy but democracy doesn't promise that it's always going to be liberal Democracy produces decisions given the distribution of power in the society at any, any particular time. And democracy, of course, is driven more than anything else by the specific interests of not only the citizens, but all the organised interests and the powerful. And they are all pursuing self-interest, as we know. And so making self-interest and the public interest, which I equate to the implementation of broadly liberal policies uh, is a challenge for any politics and, and for any democracy. And Australia's done well because of its traditions. Other countries have, have struggled in, in various ways because of their history and traditions. Um, and and the, all the governments that have occurred um, and been in Australia since 1966 have in one way or another had to confront the issues that democracy raises in trying to move the country in liberal directions. And at times, democracy is swept by fashions of thought which are actually quite illiberal. And, and the final chapters of the book, of course, suggest that that's what's happening at the moment. Yeah, that period from six, early 66 to late 72, so from the resignation of Robert Menzies to the election of Gough Whitlam, this is part of your consent of the people thesis. Donald Horn, the, the late prominent Australian author, David, he called this period in a book a time of hope. Does that come up in your book? I haven't used Donald Horn's quote in the book, but I have interpreted Gough Whitlam's government as reflecting a reform urgency that mm. was felt widely at that time after the counterculture of the 60s, uh, mm -hmm. the tremendous uh, social changes that were taking place, the spread of higher education. Uh, Whitlam came into power as somebody who wanted to reform everything that was wrong with Australia, and that mm -hmm, was mm -hmm. maybe his political strength but also his weakness because he, he had an idea that if you established a commission to deal with every problem in Australia, whether it be education or health or regional development 
the development of the cities, uh, the development of education. You had to have a commission to deal with it um, and um, you had to regulate <laughs> in order to achieve the results. And, and the problem, of course, there was that that didn't fit easily with liberal ideas necessarily of uh, free enterprise or freedom of choice. Uh, he had his ideas of reform, but others had their ideas. And so uh, it was a very difficult and fraught period. But it did reflect the fact that, and it was reflected on both sides of politics with people, uh, state premiers like Dick Hamer, uh, that social reform was now necessary to better implement the ideas of the Enlightenment. And what I do quote for Gough Whitlam is his very strong endorsement of the fact that he saw Labor's role as implementing the ideas of rational policy in the public interest that first were articulated during the Enlightenment. So he very much fitted into the general thesis, but um, unfortunately, lack of experience and, and overambition and eventually some breaches of the Constitution uh, brought him undone. Yeah, well, as you say, I mean, uh, he, he, Whitlam accomplished a lot to, during a relatively short period. It was only three years, uh, but he was smashed by Malcolm Fraser in two massive landslide elections in 75 and 77. But how did Fraser distinguish himself from Menzies on this question? Well, Fraser believed in the importance of and fundamental importance of economic policy. And he was also very much a social liberal. I call Menzies, uh, Menzies in the book the sort of the, the political uh, mentor of Fraser and Fraser is Menzies' disciple. Uh, and, and he was Menzies' disciple because Menzies, despite his general sort of care in not taking on issues that he felt he couldn't win, nevertheless very much a social liberal and concerned with the dignity of the individual person. Menzies saw civilization as built around the recognition of the dignity of each person, and that's why he was against mm. class war, he was against sectarianism, uh, he was against racism. And Fraser picked up that kind of uh, uh, trend in Menzies' thought and articulated that himself. And so although he understood much better than Whitlam uh, the uh, economic Im importance of the economy, his real heart, I think, lay in the reforms that he made, and, and to some of which he, he conceded he picked up from Whitlam, uh, of... Uh, caring for Aboriginal heritage, acknowledging that, accepting refugees from Vietnam, uh, which was highly controversial on both sides of politics when he did it, uh, and um, uh, defending the institutions of Liberal government in Australia, the parliamentary system um, and the independence of the judiciary, uh, and expanding the citizens' right to freedom of information uh, he set out to protect human rights for everybody, particularly Aboriginal people. He realised the prevalence of prejudice in the country and, and set out, he believed, uh, to implement a mission that Menzies had articulated but had not fulfilled by the time that he retired. Yeah, but I mean, but I've got to cut you off there, David. I mean, on economics, many historians, indeed many Liberal partisans, would say that Fraser was... Um, just a paternalistic Tory who represented the last gasp of the Keynesian welfare state. And it took Labor leaders, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, to deregulate the Australian economy, to open us up to international competition. 
I think Fraser, in the end, uh, was let down on the economic side by his adherence to the kind of policies that Menzies implemented. Because when Menzies became Prime Minister, Australia had already become a deeply protectionist country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a country. It was a country that uh, had a what a heavily politicised economy. Uh, government had a very big role in the economy under Menzies, and although Menzies saw the enormous and fundamental importance of private enterprise, a government that believes in private enterprise can far too readily become a government that gives subsidies and benefits to particular companies uh, rather than thinking of the competitive character of the economy as a whole. Now, Menzies wasn't unaware of that, um, and I remind you of his, his restrictive practices legislation, which began, I think, the whole movement towards competition policy in Australia. Uh, Fraser well understood the significance of private enterprise and government restraining and expenditure and balancing budgets, although he departed from that um, to his own political misfortune in his last years. But he was successful uh, in reining in the the inflation that had broken out under Whitlam uh, with the enormous spending of the Whitlam governments. Uh, And when Hawke became Prime Minister, in many ways he was arguing uh, deregulation of the economy and Fraser's failure to do what he fully said he'd do. I think Fraser was very anxious over moving further towards the reduction of tariffs uh, because Whitlam had cut tariffs by 25% and Fraser thought that that would lead to much greater unemployment. So he, he gave a preference to, uh, as he thought, and of course, Later economic thought would argue that this was a misjudgment, but he gave okay. a preference to keeping unemployment down uh, by not moving further to open the economy to the world. Now, the reality is that after Fraser, Hawke, Keating, Howard and Costello, and you document this in your book, this period from 1983 right through to 2007, both Labor and coalition governments implemented and accelerated the economic reform agenda uh, that drove up productivity and improved our living standards dramatically. And that led to a, well, helped contribute to a 30-year bull run, uh, an OECD record. But, and we need to wrap it up now, David, what's happened in the last 15 years here? Is it fair to say that both Labor, and I think of the Rudd-Gillard governments and coalition governments, so Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison, there's a widespread view, and this is best reflected in the, the the editorial of the Australian Financial Review, that we've settled into, quote, the complacency of prosperity, and we've just rested on the windfall of the China-fueled resources development boom. And there's no appetite on either side of politics to curtail these runaway spending projects. And the result's quite obvious. You know, we've had a productivity slowdown, wage stagnation, massive debt, and this is driven not by market economics, but by uh, a failure to embrace productivity-enhancing reform. So to the extent these trends continue, is that a danger to the Liberal project in Australia? David Kemp. I think it is a danger in the longer term if it's not dealt with. And what we are engaged in at the moment is a great national debate about the balance that is to be struck between social reform and productivity reform. 
And as you quite rightly say, the productivity reform momentum really ran out after the Howard government. And governments turned, and pro probably one should say the hockey budget of 2014. And governments, particularly Labor governments, but also coalition governments, turned their minds towards social reform and education to helping uh, the uh, people uh, with uh, mental health issues uh, who are physically disabled, um, to uh, reform on the uh, um, side of Indigenous people, um, and of course, particularly uh, equalising rights and opportunities for women. Now, it's possible to pursue social reform in the short term without economic reform, but in the end, it's productivity reform that creates the mm -hmm. resources that enable that reform to be properly Im implemented and entrenched. And the governments of recent times have lacked that because there's a very strong incentive in democracy for politicians to keep spending. And it's keeping spending without um, paying attention to how wealth is actually created in the end leads to the kind of issues that we're now facing. To be continued, but in the meantime, David, congratulations on your fifth and final volume. It's a major contribution and substantial body of work. Well done. Thanks so much, David. Thanks very much, Tom. That's David Kemp, former Liberal MP and Minister in the Howard government. He's author of the just-released fifth volume on Australian liberalism. It covers the period 1966 to 2022. That's from Harold Holt right through to Scott Morrison. It's titled Consent of the People and is published by Melbourne University Press. Well, that's it for Between the Lines. And just a reminder that if you want to listen to any of my previous interviews, such as my discussion earlier this year with Francis Fukuyama and liberalism and its discontents, just go to the ABC Listen app and search for the Between the Lines podcast, which you can download for free. I'm Tom Switzer. See you later. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.